Eleanor, wow, I can't believe we're even doing this. I'm uh, so excited, and uh, thank you so much for this opportunity to uh, interview you for Brick. You realize, of course, I would, I would much rather be asking you questions. You, you understand that as a given. <laughs> You were allowed three questions of me today, and that's the first. And that's the first one. <laughs> maybe okay. it doesn't have to be three. Maybe, maybe it's always a holy trinity. It's, okay, it's maybe always this, three this in the one. fairy tales and everything. It's always three. Yeah. Welcome to Brick Podcast. I'm Laurie Graham, publisher of Brick, and I'm pleased to introduce the first in our special three-part series called Writer to Writer in which we facilitate a conversation between early career writers and their literary heroes, or writers they admire and with whom they want to talk about the art and craft of writing. Good day. My name is Troy Sebastian. And I'm a Tunaka writer living in Lekwungen territory. If you are like me, you have a love for books, of radio, and of interviews. And it's through those interests that I find myself today interviewing someone that I truly admire. And that is the host of CBC's Writers and Company, Eleanor Wachtel. As a child, I had fallen in love with CBC. I remember hearing the CBC News melody coming from my father's radio in his bedroom, and throughout my childhood, my mom always had the CBC on. The radio was a constant source of news, story, music, and community. I didn't even realize that it was special because it was just part of the day and part of the evening. And as an adult, I came to love Writers and Company during my long drives home from the Okanagan to the Kootenays. And it's during these trips from Silich to Tunaka territory that the car's antenna would offer the first grainy sounds of CBC. And it was always writers and company that would welcome me home to my territory. In the imagination of this interview, I thought about all those times that I found myself held in the pure joy of listening to writers and company. And in that imagination, I see Eleanor Wachtel herself playing the saxophone in the show's theme intro music like a friendly giant, setting the stage for yet another journey of the imagination and to the world of writers I had yet to encounter. And somewhere in those drives, I imagined being interviewed by Eleanor herself. And each time I had this fantasy, the gravity of my own path towards becoming a writer became all the more clear. Eleanor has said that the greater the person, the less introduction they need. I will simply say of Eleanor that she is a firekeeper of a very great and powerful ritual that is Writers and Company. And it's my great honor to welcome Eleanor Wachtel. Hello, Troy. Oh, that was so moving. I'm not sure I could say anything. I really quite choked up. Well, it's all true. And, and it's just one of the joys that, uh, that literature writing and, and the community that Brick is to, to bring us together to have that. So it's all deserving. Who have been the mentors throughout your life? It's a hard question. Um, in one way, it was when I was a, a kid. I'm the youngest of three, and it would be my older siblings because they were my brother and sister were both readers. And although we didn't have a lot of books in the house, we got them from the library. Uh, but on Saturday mornings, we'd be in bed reading, and my mother would call down the hall 
and say, you know, get up and do things. You know, she'd have chores or activity, and we would say in a minute, then turn a page. I mean, I, I had this was modeling in a sense for me. As the young, I would see, oh, that's what you do on a Saturday morning. You lie in bed and you read a book. And this was when I was very young. But a little later, by high school, I had a high school English teacher who was just very knowledgeable, very inspiring. He he went off the curriculum. I, I, he, I met him more recently and asked him about it. And he said that there was a, a storeroom in the high school of uh, books that they had. And he just went and he just took books from there that he thought would we, would amuse. There was a Shakespeare, there was Wuthering Heights, there was uh, Pickwick Papers, Charles Dickens, one of the lesser read ones, but it was, it was funny and engaging. And so I would say I became a reader before I became a talker about books or an interviewer. So these were probably the earliest and, and most influential forces in, in my life. By the time I got to university, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I I ended up in, in, in Honours English at McGill, but that was because, again, the modeling. My brother had was in Honours Physics, my sister in Honours Psych, so I thought that I had to go into Honours something, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, and then, and then I, you know, and then it just, you know, I, books become such an important part of your life, such uh, significant companions. I wouldn't leave home without one, and and it kind of went on from there. Trying to develop an introduction for this, your introductions are just fantastic, and nearly every single subject is is always so profoundly moved, and and they appreciate the the respect. Was that something you you know you were? You started uh, at the very beginning, it's been consistent, or how, how has that developed for you? In terms of the introductions, uh, I'm not sure exactly how it evolved, but what's relatively unusual for radio hosts is to uh, write their own introductions. Usually the producer mm-hmm. writes the introduction, but it might have been right when the show began and the executive producer, Ann Gibson, suggested she didn't suggest that she would have told me. Um, I don't remember if it originated with her or I, or I was just I was sort of new to the game, so she just said, you know, you write the intro and personalize it a little bit. And that just has continued ever since. So I always write my own introductions. Before hosting Writers & Company, I had freelance for CBC Radio for a number of shows. And, and that's where I think I learned how to write for radio as opposed to print, you know, to make it more conversational. I was a, a theater critic in Vancouver in the, in the early 1980s, and it was for the morning show. And I'm not a morning person, and I knew I just couldn't get on the radio, it was live radio, and just start talking. So I had to script myself, but make it sound like I was talking, you know, just uh, mm. naturally rather than formally. So I think that's when I learned to be more conversational in my writing. So I try to make the introductions more conversational as well. Oh, there are a lovely uh, wasabi of, uh, <laughs> of context and understanding. And uh, in my introduction, I, I really wanted to come back and just ask you about something I said and see how that is with you. I described Writers and Company as a ritual and your role uh, as its firekeeper. How do you see your role in this space? I think that's the most wonderful description of the program and of my part in it that I've, that I've ever heard. I think it does reflect my passion for reading and, my, and, and for books and for, and for listening 
I mean, what could be better if you if you love reading and then you get to talk to the person who wrote the book that you've just been reading and getting so much from and whose imagination you've been entering into? So to the, to be able to talk to them, it's uh, it's just it's a it's a privilege. It's an opportunity, and the fact that we have a public broadcaster that sustains something like that, and and I work with just a few people. It's always been a small team who've shared that dedication has just been my good fortune do you ever get the fans saying that was a good one or like you know why do you have them on again what's that relationship with the the community that is writers and, and company because it really breaks down barriers and it becomes part you know of a community well you're right i mean i think radio has that intimacy that people do feel a connection and respond to it and talk back to the radio if they don't get the chance to talk to me but uh <laughs> Luckily, we live in Canada, people are so polite. So when I do public events, it's rare that somebody says something really negative, but it'll be mm. more as you describe, I guess, where they really like one person and like someone else less. But the show has also evolved a little bit, I think, in some mm. ways. And, and uh, what I find exciting about continuing to do it for so many years is some people I'll interview with almost every book they produce, uh, like Kazuo Ishiguro or Zadie Smith. But then there are so many writers who have been on the show for the first time, coming from different places, different kinds of voices. So there'll be people who respond and say, you know, I've introduced them to somebody. There are some people who write into the show and say, you know, I don't even, I don't read the books. I just want to hear the life stories. I, you know, mm. there's something I can connect to there in terms of their lives or their experience or their families or something like that. I'm continually surprised by uh, the kinds of responses that different interviews elicit in, in different people. Well, one of your uh, listeners and compatriots and someone who has been deeply involved with Brick is Michael Andachi. And uh, Writers and Company rebroadcast an interview that he had with you. And uh, do you remember what his first question was of, of you? Oh, it was probably what my first earliest memory was. <laughs> yes, yes. Which I think is a very good question. So... As this is for Brick, I thought one of the earlier questions that I should ask is, is what is your earliest memory of Brick? Oh, that's a much better question. Thank you. Because I have a friend who said that I have to polish my earliest memory, that it's not as, that I don't answer it as richly and entertainingly as the people that I interview. So I'm so glad that you didn't ask me that question. But my first memory of Brick, it was probably through Michael Andachi when I first moved to Toronto mm. in late 1987. I didn't really know him, but we had mutual friends, and he in invited me to a party, and there were lots and lots of people there, and that's probably where I first heard about Brick. But even before uh, Writers & Company started, and I first started working at CBC Toronto, I did an interview with Grace Paley, uh, who came to the International Festival of Authors, and Brick published a transcript of, of that conversation. So I've actually been associated with Brick longer than I've been associated with Writers & Company uh, mm. in terms of having some of my conversations printed between its covers, and uh, it's been a very happy association for me. In that conversation with Michael Andachi, you said that one of the first subjects that you interviewed was a mime in Vancouver. <laughs> Clearly, your, your radio interviews have, have changed and evolved since that time. Have writers changed in terms of 
whether it's their willingness to talk about themselves or their work or you know many writers are quite reticent to ha- to just to talk about themselves at all so you might have been able to get more from that mime than say some of the other uh, subjects that you've had over over the years well, the Mexican mime, I hadn't even realized this until I was invited to give a talk somewhere and somebody asked me, how did you first get into radio? And, and uh, it was when I moved to Vancouver in 1975 and, and heard that there was a job at the morning show and and uh, brought in some ideas. And, and the Mexican mime was the most absurd idea for radio. wasn't able to even broadcast it as a, as a, as a little contribution to, to the morning show. But in terms of writers willingness to talk. The thing Mm -hmm. about writers is because they work with words, they uh, are usually very articulate. I mean, words is their medium. So they're they're already predisposed to to use words. You're right, there are writers who are reticent. I don't know that it's changed in terms of the way writers themselves talk about their work, but certainly there are more writers and more outlets and more exponentially more literary festivals and public events than there were when I when I was starting out with the program um, 30 years ago. Uh, so that's changed and I think in a way maybe has put more pressure on writers to be performers or more of a performer. Mm-hmm. I'd like to ask uh some questions about literature uh, in in this country, and one of the one of the phrases or terms that, that that often comes up to me, both as a writer and as a reader, but also as an instructor in a writing program, is the the term can lit. And I was wondering if you would be if you have a definition of what can lit is. To me, it's anything written by anyone who lives in Canada. I don't think you need to belong to any school of writing or be Canadian in any particular way. And so much of uh, Canlit reflects the diversity of the country and, then, and, then, and, and people who've come from other countries to Canada that there's no way to me to come up with any kind of a narrower definition than, than that. I would ask you, in fact, that's, can, am I allowed my second question? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go to the judges. Yes, they say you can. Yeah. Yes. How, what, I wonder, I would, I would be interested in how you perceive Canlit. I think there's, there's a few areas. Number one is I have complete alignment with your answer in terms of it's anything published in Canada. However, from, a, from an industry standard and from the architecture of what is published, who whose voices are centered and marginalized, and the sort of the history of, of Canlit, that is, I think, seen profound radical changes in a lot of ways. You know, I think it's fair to say that Indigenous writing has moved from being perhaps even outside of the margin or a, a niche genre to being a if not a dominant, a central force in Canadian literature today. And, you know, Indigenous writers are consistently in the, the bestsellers in fiction, nonfiction, poetry. The most recent um, Governor General's Award for playwriting is Kim Sanclip Harvey, her play Kamloopa. And so the 
to me, there's been a significant change in the in the last ten years. How how do you see that that change uh, from where you are? I oh, I totally agree with you, and it what's so exciting about that is because if you look at the industry in in Canadian publishing, there have been shrinkages uh, in terms of Canadian presses. Before you'd have four different publishing houses, now you have one, and that one is owned somewhere else. You know, mm-hmm. so so that side of it is is has not been as promising as the content. And in terms of content, you're right. In terms of both indigenous and diverse writing, that's just certainly within the last 10 years, maybe even the last five years, there's been such a difference in that. But I, I see it more as a, as a consumer because writers and companies had an international focus. So you have a better angle of observation than I do. But from but I've certainly seen exactly what you described. Do you recall, um, of, you know, as sort of a similar question of what's your first, uh, you know, memory? I, I, I almost feel like this could be a, like a, almost like a bad drum to keep on beating. What's your first, you know, what's your first memory of brick? What's your first memory of popcorn? What's your first memory of, you know, I don't know, <laughs> whatever else. But, but, and I, I, and I'm thinking of myself in this question of, you know, what was the first, uh, or who was the first uh, indigenous writer that you read, or what was the first indigenous writing? And for myself, I think it's the Kootenai Land Declaration that our nation wrote in the early 80s. And my studying that when I was, you know, 17 or 18 years old, you know, wasn't published by, uh, you know, Schuster and Company. Who was the first Indigenous writer from Canada you were really aware of or engaged with? Probably Thomas King, I think. Uh, but in terms of treaties and so on, I, when I lived in Vancouver in the in the mid '80s, well, early '80s, I, a good friend of mine was uh, involved as a lawyer for uh, Indigenous land claims. I mean, it was oral history that she was drawing on as testimony in certain instances for Indigenous rights and land claims. But probably in terms of you know reading stories or narrative, right. uh, it. Thomas King, I think, comes to mind as perhaps the first person I read. Right, and certainly the first person I, I heard on the radio. I mean, I, my so much of my comedy I think of is you know Jasper Friendly Bear and uh, Gracie and and Thomas on uh, Escape My Mind, uh, the um, Dead Dog Cafe for for so many that's right, years. That's it. So, yes. You know, yeah. calling up Indigenous people and saying, besides being Indigenous, what else do you do? Like things like that were just just hilarious. Um, this summer, and again, thank you for your uh, patience. You know, in in rescheduling, um, which we did. But this summer was a very difficult time for for a lot of Indigenous people in Canada with the revelation of the number of unmarked graves at residential schools. And for many non-Indigenous people in Canada, this you know the country went through a very public reckoning of understanding. It seems to me that the stories that Canadians have been telling themselves about themselves have has been incomplete. And so, returning to that question of of what is Canlit, do you see Canlit having a role in in changing that? And is it happening? Because you know, I, if I was to look back on say the last decade and what was a, 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 a turning point, you know, in terms of why in non-Indigenous peoples are reading Indigenous stories. It's, yeah, I would say that it was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. From that point on, there's been a, a lot of, you know, 
many, many writers, Helen Nott, Kim Sinclair Harvey, uh, Alicia Elliott, you know, uh, so, you know, Leanne Simpson, so many incredible, in particularly indigenous women. Uh, do you see Kenlet having uh, a responsibility or role in, in changing that at all? I see it in terms of, um, well, in terms of responsibility, I think that writers, I kind of believe in the, the compulsion school of creativity that writers are driven to write things. And writing is such a hard thing to do that they write about what they're driven to do. So I would never sort of like lay a responsibility on somebody or, uh, and say, you know, you have to write about this or you should be writing about that or anything like that. So in terms of, you know, in terms of role or responsibility, I think we, need, we that is the non-Indigenous Canadians, I, I, I think our role is, is, is to listen and to try to understand, but only if you want to talk to us. I mean, what happened this summer and, and is so heartbreaking, so difficult to, to comprehend. I would never assume that I kind of like know what you're going through or anything like that, you know? I, and uh, I could only try to imagine and, and, and listen and, yeah. Well, uh, you asked, you know, do we want to have a conversation? I certainly do, especially with, with you, Eleanor. Um, and, and in terms of uh, sort of going back to the, the what is CanLit, and, and if you think of CBC, it has a public mandate, you know, um, or the National Film Board of Canada recently uh, went through a change where a key percentage of all of its work is now coming through Indigenous creators. So to me, it seems that the that there's a a gulf of, of understanding for sure of, of the sort of the realities that, that are, are present in Canada and that I'm still sort of struggling to understand not perhaps why what happened this summer became news or newsworthy but just that how anyone could possibly be you know shocked or, or dumbfounded so um, but I appreciate those these are not easy conversations um, Brick brings international voices to Canadian readers and Canadian voices to the world. And through your literary travels for Writers and Company, you have seen much of this world. Have you had any desire to live elsewhere aside from, aside from Toronto? Oh, uh, aside from Toronto, easily, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, well, I mean, I loved living in Vancouver. I grew up in Montreal. Toronto's turned out to be a good place to live, but it was uh, initially a difficult place to move to from, from, from elsewhere in, in the country. The last question I wanted to see what your thoughts are. Are there any interviews or, or, or people that you think back and you, and you ask yourself, Gee, I wish I had to ask them this question. Is there, is there anything that comes back to you? I don't know that I can share a specific question, but it used to happen to me all the time because I, I, I have a capacity for beating myself up, you know, like shoulda, woulda kind of thing. And it used to happen I, after an interview, I think, oh, why didn't I ask that? What? You know, um, it, I still, it still crosses my mind afterwards some, in, in some instances. Fortunately, it doesn't happen as often as it used to. Well, that, that's, I mean, that, that's probably a really good sign for what you, you know, have done. Um, it's good to know that that's, there's, there's no hauntings when it comes to, to writers and company. What are you working on now? What's your next book? I am finishing up a short story for The Walrus, so that will come out 
this fall, and I am terminally uh, working on my manuscript uh, for which is be my first novel. I know that um, Heather O'Neill said something about the, where when you're most disgusted with the work or something like that. That's when you're it's nearly complete. It's it's so <laughs> I feel I feel like I I am there, and it's a a novel about a Tanaka family going from one side of the border to the other because our territory is cut by the U.S.-American border. So they're leaving the Canadian side, going down to the American side for a uh, weekend at, at a casino there and just sort of what happens. So it's it's really about a, a matriarch and her and her son. So that's that's what I'm working on. Yeah. I look, f- I look forward to reading it. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you. And uh, I don't know what else to say, but just keep kicking ass, <laughs> Eleanor. <and>, uh, <laughs> thanks. Writer to Writer is brought to you by Brick Podcast and Brick Magazine. Special thanks to the Toronto Arts Council for their support of this series. Subscribe to Brick Podcast through Apple Podcasts and subscribe to Brick Magazine on our website, brickmag.com, where you can also get a first look at our new winter 2022 issue featuring writing and interviews from Eleanor Wachtel, Kinesia Lubrin, and many more. Thanks for listening.